If you're over 40 and want to be the best version of yourself, Fit Over 40 with Coach Clarence is here to help. Clarence Ferguson is a seasoned loan officer, fitness expert, personal chef, and entrepreneur who leads a revolution of men and women who want to live their best life going into middle age. Inspiring dialogue, challenging topics, and industry leaders are here offering tips and how-tos to improve your life. Now, here's Coach Clarence. Welcome to Fit Over 40. I am your host, Coach Clarence, and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I have in studio Donna Bartos, and she is the founder and CEO of Bloom 365. Now, I'm not going to presume what she knows about this subject, so I'm going to let her tell everybody who she is and let her introduce herself. Hi, Coach Clarence. Thanks for having me. As you mentioned, I'm Donna Bartos, founder and CEO of Bloom 365. That stands for Bring Love on Others More 365 Days a Year. Our focus is to prevent and respond to domestic violence, sexual violence, teen dating violence, but in a whole generation between 11 to 24-year-olds. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. Um, So you have a lot here that I'm going to get into. So let's talk about... Um, how do you recognize domestic violence? Because I think a lot of people hide it. How, what are some things you can look forward to to see if someone is being abused? So that's the elephant in the room question because domestic violence is not a one-size-fits-all description. There are um, multiple ways that it can show up, either overtly and where you can see it, clearly or subtly where you don't really recognize the signs. So typically there's a progression, but not all the time. It's verbal, emotional, physical, sometimes sexual violence. Um, It can start with just a possessive jealousy, or it can move into intimidation, humiliation, um, you know, telling someone who to be friends with, who not to be friends with. Uh, controlling finances, and um, oftentimes those are the subtle signs of abuse before it even gets physical with a punch, a push, and sometimes even death. Okay. Um, um, So subtle signs versus overt signs. Are there some words or trigger words that you might hear someone saying that would alert you being you've been at this for a while to think that there might be something going on? Yeah, that's a great question. So domestic violence stems from power and control. One person wanting to use their power to control someone else and doing that through tactics of abuse and violence, again, verbal, emotional, or physical. Um, You know, we use something in the work called minimize, deny, blame as a way to spot domestic violence in its tracks. That that subtle minimizing, you know, um, someone does something that's controlling or abusive or violent and then says it wasn't that bad or it didn't quite happen that way. And that's minimizing the abuse. So being able to pick up on that, um, denying it, you know, that never happened. You're crazy. You know, you're imagining things. And then the other part of it is blaming. You know, you made me do it if you didn't say that, or if you just did what I told you to do, I wouldn't have, you know, hurt you or said what I said. So the minimize, deny, blame tactics are usually the early signs that someone's going to try to control um, someone else through using power and control tactics. What does uh, lethality risk mean to you? So lethality risk is really about those, those red flags or those signs that the person who's abusive or violent has the potential to injure 
harm or kill someone. Um, there are five big ones. The biggest ones are um, one of the biggest red flags that might indicate a lethality risk is if someone puts their hands around your neck or tries to choke you or strangle you. That's one of the biggest lethality risks out there that we don't often recognize as, oh my gosh, if someone puts their hands around your neck, they could be lethal. Um, threatens you with a weapon um, is another big sign that that abuse could become lethal. Um, is possessively jealous, you know, and that involves stalking or doing those behaviors. Has sexually assaulted someone. So if you sexually assault someone, you are at a higher risk of potentially injuring them or killing them. And then the other is physical violence. You know, if you put your hands on someone, whether it's around their neck or not, that those risk factors increase that it could be lethal. All right. So this is a serious topic, but I'm going to ask you a question that might kind of jump the shark a little bit. What does someone request to be choked? Are you talking? Well, we're not talking about um, intimacy or, um, you know, there there has to be consent. Okay. So if someone requests that during an intimate moment, um, that consent needs to be offered and given every time. So if someone asks, hey, you know, you know, put your hands around my neck during an intimate moment and says that on a Wednesday, but on a Friday says, I don't want to do that anymore, then it becomes abusive and violent. What are some of the statistics you're seeing right now in terms of abuse in that age group you mentioned? 11 to 24, I believe you said. Yeah, so the thing about statistic is I'm a statistic. I witnessed domestic violence as a child. I experienced teen dating violence as a young person, and I was sexually assaulted as a child. But my assault and the abuse that I experienced and all the victimization that I've seen and experienced myself personally is not on a database somewhere. Mm-hmm was not tracked as a t- st- st- statistic. Ah, can we say that again? Can we cut yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we understand what you're saying. <laughs> Let me say that again. So all of the abuse that I experienced as a child being sexually assaulted, as a young person experiencing dating abuse, and as a, as in a kid witnessing domestic violence, those numbers, my numbers were never reported. So when we talk about the statistics of domestic violence, we have to be mindful that we only have information on what's reported, and most of the incidents go unreported. So reported, one in four women report being victimized by a partner, whether it's a spouse or a dating partner. One in nine men report experiencing verbal, emotional, or physical violence in an intimate or interpersonal relationship. And the most alarming statistic, and we're seeing an increase in, is how this affects young people, how this affects teens and their relationships. And over 60 students that were surveyed back in 2019 said, I have experienced verbal, emotional, or physical abuse in a dating relationship. So these numbers are bigger than what's reported, which creates an even bigger barrier for preventing them. So is there any data showing that a young person who witnesses physical or domestic abuse, do they end up down the road doing that themselves or thinking that's okay and that's just how things are? I'm glad you asked this question because one of the things that I truly believe is for decades we have gone downstream with this issue. We have responded to it after harm has occurred, after someone has been hurt. People care about these issues after there's a domestic violence homicide reported in the news where you see floods of social media conversations about someone dying. Um, But the signs, the red flags, 
that this is going to happen are there well before someone pulls a trigger or punches someone or jacks someone up against the wall. And in our lane of work, the research says that there are specific risk factors and root causes that can lead to someone being at risk for being abusive, controlling, or violent. Some of those big risk factors that um, come down from the Centers for Disease Control Research and, and Evaluation are um, belief in rigid gender roles, you know, seeing how, um, you know, specifically how violence against women is normalized, not only in the media, but also, um, you know, we talk about in the locker room and we talk about rape jokes. We talk about even at the dinner table, sometimes violence against women is is normalized. So that has a, a part in it. But in addition to that, there's a whole set of what we call adverse childhood experiences. Have you ever heard of ACE, the ACEs or the ACEs studies? No. So the ACEs, it's a lot of, I mean, the research been there, but it's emerging where even corporations are paying attention to this that says, if you're a child and you experience four or more adverse childhood experiences, and the majority of them have to be witnessing your mother being abused, experiencing sexual assault, seeing violence in the home, um, a parent who's incarcerated. Um, maybe there's mental health challenges at home. There's a whole bunch of, of ACEs. And if you experience these ACEs, you are more likely to potentially perpetrate violence or have other big health concerns later in life. And then in addition to those adverse childhood experiences, that can lead to deep insecurity, which is one of the roots of power and control. So if you feel really insecure with yourself and you feel powerless in that relationship, um, it could lead to that possessive jealousy behavior, that stalking behavior where, oh my gosh, they're not with me. Where are they? That insecurity can really root big and lead to power and control. Some of those other risk fa- factors are um, societal norms. Like I'd mentioned, they're really big. Um, you know, just not having a peer, not having peer support or feeling connected to young people. When you look at kiddos who are and young people and students who are showing up, and, and um, committing school shootings, when you look back at their history, chances are there were limited peer connections there. They didn't feel connected to their school community or to their peers. Um, so there's a bunch of risk factors that lead lead to this. And the good news is they're all preventable. So I'm going to circle back to something you said. Um, you said they weren't tracking data back when you experienced your thing. Um, I've heard stories of policemen who would pick the husband up let him take him for a ride, send him back home. It was quite normal for someone to be abused. Um, and then they would just let him cool off and go back home. And sometimes they didn't even show up. They would just let, it's a family matter. It's your business. And it's also cultural too. Uh, different races deal with that kind of thing. It is hush hush. Cause people want to, you know, especially in sexual abuse, they want to keep things hush hush and not expose the crazy uncle who's, you know, molesting people in the family and stuff like that. So when was the shift to when they started reporting this data? Gosh, you know, the Violence Against Women Act was um, ratified in the mid-1990s. And that act allowed for um, government intervention through funding resources to train law enforcement, to build more shelters so that there's more shelter beds, to include more advocacy, counseling resources for healing and safety for victims. So we saw, you know, from the mid-1990s onward that there were more people paying attention to how is law enforcement responding and how do we make sure that law enforcement officers 
know how to respond. And that takes, you know, that takes decades yeah. to change that kind of shift in culture. Mm-hmm. And also to get the awareness out to families and friends that this is not a private matter. If I'm getting my nails done at the salon and the person who's doing my nails has an abusive ex who shows up and wants to do harm to her and shoots her and then shoots me, it's no longer a private matter. And we've seen those cases over and over again how this is a community problem. Anybody can be impacted by it. So we've made great progress, but community by community, state by state, laws are different and responses are different. Um, you go to a rural part of, of, of the state, you might not have the same responses as you right. would here in Phoenix in a metro area. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, my focus and our focus at Bloom 365 is we can't wait for adults to change this. We have to focus on changing culture in a whole generation of young people. So one of the points that you make is it's not an anger problem. Explain that. Do you ever get angry, Coach Clarence? No, I'm so sweet and nice. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you deal with your anger? Seriously, when you get angry, what do you do? Grab a whiskey or smoke a cigar. No, I'm too, yeah, of course I get angry. Have you ever punched a door because you're angry or thrown I've a backpack a or slammed a door or something? I've right? punched a lot of things, people included. Yes. All right, so okay, so let's talk about this. And not calling you in about this, but you punch a door because you're so angry, right? Someone yeah. did something, you're angry, and you put a hole in that door. Yeah. That's between you and the door. That's angry. Mm-hmm. That's angry. We all get angry. You punch that door and you look at the person who upset you and you say the next time is going to be your face. That's no longer anger. You just jump from anger to abuse because you are using that act to inst- intimidate someone, instill fear or threaten. So that's the difference between anger and abuse. It's about power and control and using your verbal, emotional or physical actions and behaviors to try to control someone and have power over them. We all get angry. We are not. A wall? I have. Yeah. I actually punched a hole in my closet door when I was a kid because I was so mad at my mom. Yeah. But she wasn't there, right? It was between me and the door. And that's why I use that example because if she was there and I said, next time it's going to be your face, well, now I'm threatening her. Right. And now that's abusive. Okay. Um, what is something you could do when you see a friend? Talk about the level response method when you see someone dealing with this. So we all know someone who's experienced domestic violence, whether we know it or not, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, or someone we follow on social media has experienced this. So what do you do? What you don't want to do is give advice. I mean, we, we all like giving advice, right? But advice, there's usually layered an opinion in there. Yes. And when someone's experiencing domestic violence, it's not time to give your opinion. Well, that person is awful. And why are you staying with them? And didn't you see this coming? And why didn't you leave? And you're, I'm really frustrated that you're not leaving. Um, and that's, that leads to judgment. So we never want to judge someone. Okay. Think about it this way. Someone who's experiencing domestic violence, the person who's controlling or abusing them is already telling them what to do. So as a friend or family member, if we approach it by telling them what to do, sometimes we're pushing them even closer because now they're embarrassed or ashamed that they're not going to do what you tell them to do because there are so many barriers in their way to healing and safety and ending that relationship. So the best thing to do is to remember to level with them. It's very easy. L is listen. Just listen. Zip those, zip those lips. Don't say anything. Don't give advice. Just listen. You know, I'm here for you. I'm here to listen. And then the next thing is to empathize. I'm so sorry that happened to you. You don't deserve this. Validating, again, going back to it's not your fault. 
you didn't deserve this. And then the next E and level is to encourage, encourage to, um, always come back. If they just want to talk that, that you encourage and let them know you're just going to listen, that you're there, you're a helpful resource, keeping that door open for them to reach back out to you so that you're not shutting it with a judgment call or shutting it with opinions. And then the last L is linked to resources. So there are resources out there like the um, National Domestic Violence Hotline. At Bloom 365, our resource is specifically for 11 to 24-year-olds and their parents and caregivers who might be seeing this going on. It's our helpline. It's 1-888-606-HOPE to link to a resource. And the way to do that isn't, hey, you need to call this hotline or, hey, you need to call this helpline. Hey, I heard about this resource. It might be something you want to look into. Well, I'm glad you said that because I'll tell you a personal story. My oldest sister was dealing with a, a guy who was beating her up. And so she called us and we came over and did the business on this guy. And literally she was back with him in a week. And we were like, we're never going over there again. So the whole judgment part you just talked about is true. And I've even talked to police officer like, this is so-and-so again. And they even become reluctant. I've seen the person who was abused fighting the police when they're trying to arrest the person. Absolutely. So that's good that you said, I like the level thing. And you should actually make sure you write that down, Laura. So we can, okay, cool. Yeah, level that's with powerful. Them. Yeah. Um, trying not to judge is hard because we judge. Why are you with that person? You did say that people do that, even if it's just a bad relationship. So when someone is hitting someone or doing something really abusive, we are quick to say, oh, why are you with it? Why are you staying? I have no friends who are with people that are cheating on me. And we go, why are you still with that person? So it's deeper than just, you know, judging. So that's hard. So that's another level that you, no pun intended, to get to. Yeah. What are some tools to educate people who are in those scenarios without the judgment? Oh, well, again, I, I stand by the level as a tool, not just as something to, to think about, but that as a friend, as a family member, you're not an expert unless you are, but we're not counselors. We're not therapists typically as, as, as parents or as friends or as family members. So the biggest tool is to level to link to those resources at bloom 365. We have a resource on our website called the, are you blooming or wilting tool? It's a tool that helps um, anybody recognize, hey, am I making someone wilt by wanting to have power and control over them? Or am I helping my partner, my friend, my family member bloom because I believe that they have the freedom to make their choices and that there's fairness in that relationship? Um, so there are lots of tools out there, but really the, the tools that's used is dependent upon what the situation is. Not everybody's idea of safety looks the same. So like your situation with your sister you see that she's not safe in that situation. But has anybody asked her, what does safety look like to you? Right? Because no. safety might be... Because your response is, I think, is emotional. You know, yeah. so you see somebody getting abused, you want to jump in and help. And you do get frustrated because you hear... Then it's, you're, it's like the, the narrative of the boy who cried wolf. Oh, yep. So-and-so's beating you up or so-and-so's doing this. And you've heard it so many times, you eventually stop even taking the calls. Yeah. It's, it is easy to judge. And I think that's a big part of a lot of this. It is. And, and when you share that, it's, you know, statistically, again, going back to those stats, usually it's seven to eight times that someone's experiencing victimization before they end the relationship or leave it, that they go wow. back seven to eight times. And sometimes it's longer than that. COVID has changed things in terms of isolation and financial stress and financial stress does not cause domestic violence, but it can exasperate it. Mm -hmm. Substance use does not cause domestic violence, but it can amplify it. So you know, in your sister's case, thinking about the reasons why, like to really think with 
you know, family members and others who are saying, oh, we throw our hands up in the air. We don't want to deal with this anymore. We're so frustrated with her. Why doesn't she just leave? Really thinking about what are her barriers? And one of the biggest ones might be love, that she actually loves him and she doesn't want to unhook that. Um, and the barriers, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but the, but they're deep and they're different for everyone, whether it's financial, if there's children involved, fear that maybe um, their partner has more resources or more clout in the court system and can, can, you know, maintain custody of the kids. Fear if they call law enforcement, you know, someone's going to show up and say, oh, especially if it's mom that's the victim, you're not protecting your kids because you haven't left yet and you haven't gone to shelter. So now we're going to take your kids and put them in foster care because you can't protect them because you choose to stay. Um, other reasons might be, um, you know, just fear that this person is threatened to harm them, harm yeah. their family, harm their pets, harm another family member. So, you know, I'm just going to suck it up and stay because I don't want anybody that I love to be hurt believing them when they say, I'm going to change. I'm never going to do it again. That was my dad's case. You know, my mom believed that he would never do it again. And ultimately he never did it again because there was a turning point, but for over a decade, he kept doing it. So recognizing that as family, as friends and as society, we expect victims to unhook all of these hooks at once. Mm -hmm. And it's not that easy. Okay. So I'm going to give you a couple scenarios. The main one is you made me do it. So if you're someone listening to this, what is something you could give advice to a man or a woman? Cause my producer right. abuses me and I'm just trying to, I need oh, these no. answers. This is really a personal <laughs> question, uh, how I can get out of this situation. <laughs> um, so no, but you hear that you made me do this. That's you made me hit you. You made me get angry. Yeah. It's your fault that I get angry and respond the way I do. What would you tell someone who's in that scenario? What's a good response or Cause that's very common. And then I've heard people say, well, if I wouldn't have been this, or if I would have did the dishes or if I would have had the house clean when they came home, or if I would have had dinner fixed, even though I just worked 10 hours and I'm tired myself, what is something that you would say to somebody who is hearing that? Cause that's very common. Well, on both sides, not just on the person who's hearing it, but on the person who's doing it, because that's the root of this problem is, you know, for the longest time we've put the responsibility of ending victimization on the shoulders of those experiencing it. And we haven't put the responsibility on those who are doing it. So if you're hearing that, you know, minimizing, deny, blames response, you made me do it. First and foremost is to recognize that that is, you know, and I know this term has been overused, especially now, but that's gaslighting. That's essentially making you believe that it is your fault. Oh, if I did just do the dishes, if I did just have dinner on the table at five o'clock, now I need to change the way I think so that I can reduce the the potential of being harmed or being blamed for this. And that's gaslighting. On the other side of things, if you're someone who wants to maintain power and control, just recognize that, you know, for adults, unless it's court or- ordered, those resources are few and far between for people who are abusive, controlling, or violent. At Bloom 365, we've finally figured out how to provide those services to young people who are abusive, so, controlling, or violent. Hold on, so so yeah. you, you guys offer resources to people who are, and I'm doing air quotes, the abusers. Correct. So if you, so someone can come and go, look, I think I may be doing too much. I may be an abuser. I'd like to get help. If they're between the ages of 11 and 24, Bloom 365 provides that support. Damn. She's 67. I'm, I'm screwed. Oh, so, you know, it's just, it's a mind shift. 
True. that has to happen. This is this is not something that's going to happen overnight. And this podcast isn't going to solve it either. But hopefully, well, you know what? You're well, maybe being it negative. will be. Okay, I well, feel like you're gaslighting me. I, I did this because I want people to know the well, research. People should know, but also like in in. in the way change happens right I, now, I'm going to I'm going to get scholarly and <laughs> academic here Go for a minute it. and try to pare it down to everyday terms. There's this thing that's called the social ecological model. It's like yes. a ripple effect. I've heard of this. Right, so it has to happen one. at the individual level first. So right. you have to make the decision. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm not going to tolerate my friends doing this, my family members doing this, or even tolerate when I see people in power doing this. I'm just going to not tolerate anymore. So you can put out your Facebook post or your tweet and saying, this is bad. Okay, that's between you and, and the world. But if you don't do anything with that and bring that into your relationships and start having conversations around the dinner table about how what can we do as a family to stop this? Or in your school classrooms, what can we do as a school community to stop this? What can we do as a church community to stop this? If you don't push that out into your relationships, it stays with you and it goes nowhere. So we've got to get that individual, okay, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm going to reflect empathy, respect, and consent in my relationships. And then I'm going to push this out in the community and ask my churches to get involved, my sports teams to get involved, my school communities to get involved to just go purple during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Really simple. Like, wear the color and break the silence. That's an easy thing everybody can do. And then that hopefully will trickle to the societal and government level because we know laws dictate sometimes how people behave. Not all the time, but they do. And the accountability factor here for those who are controlling abusive or violent has been minimized by the response being victim get help, call the helpline, call the police, go to a shelter. So I'm going to pick up my kids or myself and I'm going to go to a shelter. Well, that person who's been abusing me for a year, five years, 10 years, nothing happens to them, but a slap on the wrist. Yeah. So second question, and this is, we probably all do this. We've all lashed out at someone and the excuse is, well, I'm having a bad day or I'm tired or someone cut me off in traffic or maybe my paycheck wasn't what it was supposed to be. And you know, so I said these nasty things to you. And sometimes people say nasty things are arguments just to score points. Yeah. So how would you address that? Oh, man. Were you taught how to communicate your feelings as a kid? No, not until I got in my 30s that I even understand what feelings were. Yeah. I wasn't taught, like, what do you do? If you're, you're supposed feeling- to suppress them, especially in the black community, especially young black men. Are, they're, they're not, you know, your feelings are hard, 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 and that's it. That's right. That's what we have to do. We have to change that. Yeah. To where there's strength in talking about, hey, I feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. when this is happening. Yes. Can we change this? Hey, I feel left out when we're at dinner and you're always on your phone and you're not talking to me. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, put that phone down, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, is this a learning moment here? <laughs> <laughs> so no. it's called, you know, in the counseling world, therapy word, and again, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor. It's called an I statement and they feel uncomfortable because you're being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Because what are you losing in that moment when yes. you're really being vulnerable? You're losing two words, would, power would you, and control. Would you agree that people are afraid to be vulnerable? They've had a bad experience. The last relationship they were in, they were treated bad or taken advantage. People are afraid to be vulnerable. Uh, yes. I think that's why dating, if you're single, you're married. I think, oh, you have a ring on. I'm assuming you're married. Yes. Um, dating is hard because people are afraid to be vulnerable because somebody in the past has taken advantage of somebody and 
they go into it with all these hard, like, I'm not going to do this. And if I see this, and it may not even be related to what the person is doing, but you have this experience and you're carrying that into your new relationship. So, okay, let me, let me, let me switch gears real quick. How would you tell someone who has been abused, who just got in a new relationship that's looking and, you know, their, their eyes are open for every little thing that may not be a thing, but they're so conditioned to looking for those things. How would you tell somebody to deal with that? Well, again, like being knowledgeable about what are those red flags and the red flags, are the red flags, right? And is yeah. there, is that minimizing, denying, blaming going on? Is there a level of power and control? And is the person that you're with or dating, are they able to communicate with you? And we at our organization, Bloom 365, we have a high school program. It's called our seven dose curriculum. And we mm-hmm. go into health ed classes and deliver this curriculum. And one of the things we encourage students to think about is as a 13, 14, 15 year old who might be thinking about dating, or even if you're in a friendship, what are your deal make- makers and what are your deal breakers? I wish someone I had that. that conversation with me. We all do. Yeah. Right? Because, and, and as a kid, your deal breakers and deal makers might change when you become an adult and they might change every year, but that's okay. But you've got to be mindful. If your deal makers are that the person is empathetic, that they can communicate and that they respect you. Mm-hmm. But yet that's not happening, then you have to make a decision. Are these really my deal makers or am I willing to bend on these? So let me ask you a tough question. I found, and again, I'm not the expert, but women are very motherly, more emotional. So they tend to think I can fix this person. Yeah. You know, he's got all these great qualities when I first met him. And they're hearing all those things and they're starting to say, Well, let me just give him some time. What what is a sign that this is this not going to be fixed? It's just this is bad. I need to move on. If they if the person who's controlling abusive or violent does not take the steps to get the help that they need, they have to take the steps. How would you approach that conversation? Oh man, if you're experiencing victimization, I wouldn't recommend that that you trying to you know have that conversation with the person who is victimizing you because it might Triggers it might backfire. Them. Right. Um, it might be, you know, you're trying to fix me. What do you mean? I can, I can take care of myself. It really comes down to that, that socio-ecological model. You know, who in their life influenced them? That they listen to. Who do they? Is it their peers? Is it their family? Is it their boss? Is it? You know, you don't want to rat someone out because that could cause a, a big safety concern. Sure. But there are models out there that say, okay, we've got two people and there's abuse and violence going on. And that relationship's not going to end. We don't see it as ending because there are children, there's finances, there's there's history, there's a lot. So what do we do? Well, the person who's abusive needs to take that first step and say, yeah, I see what I'm doing and I want it to stop. But then the people around them, aside from the person that they're victimizing, needs to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that they that they care most about. You know, abusers don't show up to work and abuse their coworkers nope. typically. No, oh, they're awesome. And right. that's another part. When you tell a friend, they're like, no, Clarence is awesome. That's he doesn't right. beat Laura. You know, he doesn't talk bad about Laura. Why do you think that? Do and I need that's, to do an intervention here? No, we're just, we give each other <laughs> shit on this show every week. This is just our thing. Yeah, yeah. No, but there is that yeah. guy. Haven't you heard that? Like, yes. John is great. What yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. He's the best guy in the world. And your peers don't believe yeah. you. My dad is the best guy in the world. Now he passed away in December, but you know, but he had his moment where it's not, it's not um, the norm where someone completely turns it around. And he did, 
Um, but everybody in, in our community and our family and friends, like, he's a great guy. The guy that I dated, oh, he's an all-star everything. He's awesome. He would never do that. So when I ended the relationship that I was in, that was abusive, everyone's giving you the business. What are you doing? You guys were going to get married. You're amazing. You're wonderful. He was great. What are are you stupid? You don't know what I, what I experienced. And I can't tell you that because you don't see what I experienced. So here's my next question. So we had the whistleblower talk about Facebook and how the body images, which is a form of abuse. Um, shaming young girls who are considering suicide because they see these filters and they see uh, women's bodies that are unrealistic. And I'm a trainer. Some of the stuff that you see is unrealistic. It's filtered. It's there's all kinds of apps. I mean, hell this, I have an app that makes me look decent. So I know it's true. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, the secrets. The secrets. <laughs> hey, listen, it's true. Hey, I gotta do what I have to do. Um, but no, like that's the new abuse, social media. you, you, you shame people. You hear a lot of young kids in the eight, the demographic you talked about kids are being abused for, for whatever reasons, their weight, their family, their, maybe they're poor or they don't have resources. What are some things that you are doing to combat social media? It doesn't look like Facebook ain't going nowhere. They got too much money and power. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, but they're saying, and this lady saying they know it, but they're so profit driven that they don't care. Yeah. Well, again, it's got to be that culture mind shifting moment that needs to happen. And the best way that I can describe this is on our Facebook page, our Bloom 365 Facebook page. Um, and it's weird. It's like the face Instagram's a little bit different, but on our Facebook page, if we push out a story about someone who lost their life to domestic violence homicide or um, the recent, you know, um, Gabby Petito case, mm-hmm. you know, we're sharing information about that. That was a dating violence homicide. and It needs to be called that. If we're sharing those stories, we get shares and likes and comments if we share a good story about something blooming about a kid showing up with respect or empathy maybe one like one like maybe right. two Negativity likes sells. it does violent cells when you turn on the news at night sorry news media people but i believe that this next generation when they take the seats and are the anchors that they have the power to change the storyline yeah. is you know 80 90 is all about who got shot today and at the end, maybe there's a minute about a, a good human interest story. Yeah, a cat was in a tree and the fireman right. took him out the tree. And so it's kind of that mind shift where when, when you're seeing stuff, especially as young people's peers, and you're seeing this negative, in our terminology, wilting stuff on social media, it's hard to be the first one, to be that lone nut to say, no, I'm going to shut this down. That's not good. That's not right. Like, here's the real story. You know, stop slut shaming, stop blaming, stop victim blaming. Being that lone ranger or that lone nut, that only person doing that, is an unsafe place for young people to be the first one to stand up. So what we say is you got to stand up together. And there's this theory of change called the tipping point. Have you heard of the tipping point theory of change? I've heard it. I don't really know the definition. So again, geeking out here, it's it's this science that says when 10% of a population does something against the norm or changes something, whether it's good or bad, blooming, wilting, that that's enough for others to take note. So if you have 100 people and 10 of them wear a purple shirt the first Friday in Domestic Violence Awareness Month at work, that's enough for others to say, what's all that purple about? And that's a moment where you can say, this is why I'm wearing purple. It's kind of like the, the whole um, 
cell phone thing. I give the example. Did you have a BlackBerry ever? Oh yeah, I had a BlackBerry, right? And I would not get rid. I of didn't want to get rid of it. I love the I buttons. It. it was easy to. Yeah, yeah, it was great. But then you're in your first meeting. You know, I remember being around a conference table, yeah. and the majority of people had these like smartphone things, and they were taking selfies. I'm like, what is that? Right. And then I thought, well, I can't take a selfie with my BlackBerry, so I went to the Verizon store and I upgraded. That's the tipping point, and that's the tipping point that we need to get to in order to, in our terminology, upward abuse in a generation. Mm-hmm. 10% of people saying, no more, we're not going to tolerate this. And when we see this on social media, we're going to rally and get 10 people, 10% of the people in that family, friend group, thread to push back. What are some um, help-seeking barriers that are faced by victims of domestic violence? Oh, gosh. Like, how long do we have? Um, you know, I'll frame this as young people because that's our target audience. And and it can apply to adults too. Um, Who's going to believe me, Mm -hmm. right? That's a big barrier. Where do I go? How do I seek help? I'm 13 years old. Like, what am I going to do? I'm seeing this at home. Where am I going to go? Who am I going to see? Who's going to help me with this? Um, Pause really quick. I want to inject something. There is this whole segment of the population and I may be part of this a little bit. Maybe I've said some things. Um, we grew up different than this new generation. So you hear you kids don't have it rough. Mm-hmm. You know, you got cell phones, you got the internet, you have every resource to know things where we had to go out and play. We drunk out of water hose. You see those memes. Yeah. So, um, that's what a 13 year old is facing. Oh, we, we used to walk to school with no shoes on. I mean, just exaggerate the adultism. But, they're yeah. facing it big time. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, adultism is a barrier yeah. to seeking help. Even thinking about that level response as a parent, how you can level with your kids instead of saying, it's not that bad. This too shall pass. Then what's really bad for them right in that moment. And as a parent, we got to listen and not just minimize what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Well, I walk to school with no shoes on. <laughs> okay. But I've got friends who are, who are threatening suicide and I don't know what to do with that. Did you have that mom or dad? Right. So, right. so, yeah, it's really comes down to um, understanding those barriers and coming from a place of empathy and not giving advice, not injecting your opinion, not judging yes. and trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone when if they say, my biggest barrier right now to ending this relationship is I don't want to end it because I just want it to get better Yeah, because I love them. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Then that's a barrier. Okay. What is something that's missing in domestic violence prevention and what is the solution? I believe that the biggest thing that's missing is early intervention. There was a school shooting, I think today or yesterday in Texas, today in Texas, right? I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't get before coming in here. I didn't see who it was, but if it was a a student, it was, well, that's what the story is. A student. Chances are the red flags were all there. And they were missed. If it was an adult, the the red flags were all there and they were missed. Mm -hmm. And I think what needs to change, and this is the culture shifting moment that has become very politicized right now, especially what we see going on at school board meetings with parents coming in and fighting and saying, we don't want social emotional learning. And they don't even know what social emotional learning really is. It's this. Yeah, if it's I disagree preventing with you, this. I'm going to kill you or beat you up or drive you outside the road. Yeah. That's kind of the culture. And so- I can do that quicker. Yeah. And and what it comes down to is like, I remember being in school 
I remember going to the nurse's office every year and having to put my hands together and bending down to touch my toes to get checked for scoliosis. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. I remember having vision and hearing checks. Yeah. But no one, I'm going to get emotional. All right. No one asked me if I was seeing domestic violence at home. No one did a risk assessment to see if I was at risk for being sexually assaulted as a child. Mm -hmm. No one asked those questions. And we need, and, and not just on the victimization side, there are kids who are walking into school today who are at risk for harming themselves, harming their peers, harming their current or future dating partners, and we're missing it because we're too afraid to ask those screening questions that could help them and put the wraparound support and social emotional learning support in place so that they are no longer a risk factor. So do you think just parents and social social circles just don't know how to deal with it or they don't know how to recognize it? Well, I think this has become such a politicized issue, right? Empathy has become a politicized word. Right. Equality has become a politicized word. Consent. We don't want our kids to talk about sex in school. Well, consent is asking for permission. Give me your pen or can I borrow your pen? Sure. Right. So I think that what needs to happen, and, and I have hope in this next generation because I've been to the school board meetings. I've had conversations with parents and there's no winning that battle when you've got an adult who has put a stake in the ground and said, it's my way or no way. Sure. But with kids, with a generation who are going to be the young people who are going to be, I call it the P's. They're going to be the parents someday, the principals, the presidents, the politicians, the public policy makers, the podcasters, the peer influencers, you know, the publicists. Think about the physicians. Right. Think about all the positions that start with the letter P that have power. Yes. They're going to be that. Right. And we need to have patience, the big P, yeah. because it's going to take a whole generation to change this. That. I struggle with that. That's my patience. Vice. Patience. <laughs> I'm working. I'm a work in progress. (laughs) I am more empathetic to what you're talking about because I get to talk to people like you all the time. So it's I just think there needs to be more of a forefront. And I agree with you. Things are politicized. It is compromise is a bad word. Um, Having a difference of opinion and just being okay. This is a difference of opinion. You don't have to agree with it. But you just understand, like, okay, I understand that. That's how, not how I feel, but we're cool. We can disagree yeah. and move on. But everything now is, like you said, stake in the ground. We're standing over here, and we're not moving over there, and that's it. You know, we're ready. I mean, a lot of people are saying we're at a point of another civil war, you know. It feels like it. And in our lane of work, we can't have this because the consequences are too dire. And when you, when you think about it this way, if I were to walk into, a, I'm just going to use a school board meeting because most of our work is school-based, and this is where I've seen the most resistance for what we're doing. And we're not talking about the stuff that they think we're talking about, like critical race theory and other things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about healthy and safe relationships, mm-hmm. uprooting abuse in a generation, and preventing domestic, sexual, and teen dating violence. And I can almost guarantee that if I walked into a, a school board meeting, there were 100 parents in there, and I asked them all to raise their hand, how many of you want to see a school shooting happen tomorrow? No one's going to raise their hand. How many of you want a child that goes to school with your child to be sexually assaulted today? How many of you want our kids to witness domestic violence or experiencing dating abuse? None of them are going to raise their hand. Right. But it's the how we get there is where the battle is. And, and, and 
we're the experts in this. We know what research says and science says, and it's not about opinions, and it's not about family matters anymore. When someone shows up and blows them away, blows away their classmates at a school, this is no longer a family matter, and they did it because someone just broke up with them. This is now domestic, sexual, and teen dating violence matter, and sure. I think we need to, to, to understand that. We all want the same thing at the end of the day, safe kids, safe schools, yeah. no more violence. How we get there is we've got to listen to what the experts and research says and move it along together. And we're in a, a time where data and research and science is questioned. Politicized, <laughs> questioned. We, we, we pick our team and that's the team we're on and nothing's going to change that. So, yeah. So how can friends, family, neighbors, communities help uproot abuse in our generation? Well, recognize it when you see it. Recognize it in yourself. Not just recognize the red flags if someone's harming you, but recognize, are you harming someone? Sure. Is what you're doing, is what you're saying, caring or controlling? Yes. I agree with that 100%. It starts with you. It starts with you. And going back to that level, you don't need to be an expert. Listen, empathize, validate, encourage, and link to resources. And then the other big thing is in order to change culture, we have to show visibly intolerance and coach Clarence. We need more men and guys in this work. You know, for me, when my creepy cousin would stick his tongue in my ear as a kid, the guys around that table in my kitchen would laugh and right. think it was funny. Right. right? No one stood up for and me said, then as the guys that. and said, hey, creepy so-and-so, don't do that. And, you know, when we talk about going to the marches or going to the rallies or doing this work or actually being advocates, the majority of us doing this work women. are women or feminine. Yep. And, and, and we need more guys. So, hey, guys listening, we need you. And one way that you can do this so easily, easily, we have something called the First Friday Campaign at Bloom 365. It's a simplistic way to get involved. October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Wear the color purple and ask other people to do it. So let me offer a, a slight pushback on that because men, there are men who do that, but then they are ostracized by politicians, by people, like you said, with influence. Oh, you're a you're you're a weenie, or you're you're a uh, I can't even say some of the words that are used. You the P, the F, yeah, all of them. Yeah, you're you're weak. You're empathizing with somebody. That's not, and you know, that's not considered cool. And that's the problem where a lot of guys won't step up. They'll just say things quietly or behind scenes, and they won't say it publicly because they, 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 men apparently have to be tough. Yeah. Well, that's why 85% of the domestic violence murder homicides are committed by men because of what you just said. Yeah. That's why 90% of the teen dating violence victims are teen girls and young women wow. because of what you just said. So the barriers to seeking help aren't just there for those who are experiencing victimization. Those barriers to building an empathetic and respectful society are there for the masculine people in our lives because society says if you show up with empathy, you're going to be perceived as weak. And it's that mind shift that we need to do in a whole generation that being empathetic is strong. There's power and strength in that. And we're not there yet. I agree. 100%. Well, this has been interesting. So Anything coming up with your company? Anything you want to promote? Yes. Are you a golfer? Uh, well, define golfer. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be a good can golfer. I, can I swing a club? Yes. For, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're having uh, we're having our very first outdoor Rock the Purple Golf and Jam sure. fundraising nine hole um, 
scramble tournament. So okay. only one person in your group needs to be good. Okay. And it's going to be at Sun City Country Club on October 29th. It's an afternoon, so short event with a big concert afterwards um, with a, a classic rock kind of tribute. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happening on the 29th. People can find information at bloom365.org for that. Okay. We, um, you know, if anybody listening wants more information on how to do this, especially if you work in schools or you work with young people or your workforce is 18 to 24 year olds. Like this stuff happens at, at work you. too. People are it walking into work carrying too. this. Yeah. Which is cooler. We know how to hide it better. We have our um, trusted adult ally training, which is really deep, deep dives into that level response really gives the adults in the lives of young people the tools they need to respond, especially parents and caregivers and youth service providers, coaches, et cetera. Um, and the other big thing is just join us. Wear the awareness color during our first Friday awareness campaigns. Join us to raise awareness. Join us to break the silence. When we do that, we show survivors that we see you, we hear you, but we also say to our community, enough's enough. Okay. Uh, where can people find you on social media? So on Instagram, we are at Bloom365. On TikTok, we're at Uproot Abuse. Facebook, we are Bloom365. And Twitter, we're Uproot Abuse. Someone already taken Bloom365. So we have to navigate Uproot Abuse and Bloom365 on social. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been definitely entertaining and educating at the same time. And sounds like we all got a lot of work to do. So And we can uh, do it. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. This is Coach Clarence and my guest, Donna Bartos. We are talking about domestic violence, what you can do, how you can spot it. Um, listen to it. Rewind it back. You're probably participating in it without you even knowing it. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in to Fit Over 40 with Coach Clarence. You can follow me on all platforms where you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Just type in Fit Over 40 with Coach Clarence. You can also find me on YouTube at Coach Clarence TV. Like and subscribe so that you get all the videos as soon as we drop them. And last but not least, remember the golden rule. If you can't be good, be good at it.